Well, hello, and uh, welcome to What Divines Us. My name is Rabbi Abram Goodstein. And I'm Reverend Matthew Schultz. And you are here listening uh, right now. <laughs> <laughs> welcome! I'm glad you're here. I might need to go back and deal with that one. <laughs> All right, so, uh, so um, as you may remember from our last two episodes, we split this into three parts. The first one we, we call Religion 101, where Matt and I introduce a sort of a religious concept that happens in our faith communities for newcomers. Um, after that, we have a program we call uh, Stray Dogma, where we talk a little bit about something that maybe annoys us or upsets us about our own religions. And then after that, we have something called Pop Theology, where we talk about kind of where religion and pop culture meet. So we're going to start with uh, Religion 101, and our topic for this episode is all about ritual. Ritual. <laughs> that conjures up positives and negatives know, for me. I know, I know, I know. But I think before we like really dive deep into our own faith community ritual, I want to I, I give you like a hypothesis okay. of what I think ritual is, mm-hmm. um, and then you can sort of like critique it, or, uh, or, or play with that, okay? Okay. Okay. So I, I think ritual is one or two things, okay? So the, the first thing is that it's this feeling connected, right? Feeling right. connected to each other, feeling connected to God, feeling connected to our calendar, our seasons. It's, there's this connectedness. Going uh-huh. on, okay? Yeah. And the other definition of ritual is that it is a designed experience. Oh, I like that. Yeah, so like... I, I'll, know, I'll be honest with you, the first one, I was playing the game in my head of, here's all the things that I have a problem with about yeah. that. But well, that let's, second let's, one... Let's, let's, let's dive into that. Well, though. no, no, I want to hear more of you say... I want to hear more of what you're saying about designed okay. experience. Okay, yeah. So, so um, we often live in a, in a world where we can't control all the things that happen to us, right? Uh, for example, you can't really control when you get sick. But right. an, a ritual is a designed experience that you can control. And so in some time, I think in some ways a ritual is a reaction to the things that we can't control or, or even a tableau of, of an experience that happened well in the past. Uh, and so, mm, and so okay. I, think, I think the hypothesis is that a ritual is either one or both of those things. This feeling of being connected and this designed experience. All right. All right. So what are, what, how's, that, how's that play with you, Matt? False. You're wrong. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for today. We'll see you on the next episode of What Yikes. Divines Us. <laughs> no, I, I think, uh, boy, there's so many good things in what you said and so many things that make me bristle. And I think that probably indicates that you described it well. Because that's also how I feel about ritual in general. Like, mm. there are parts of it that I love and parts of it that, honestly, I just hate. Um, feeling connected. Um, yeah, I think that's a good goal. I, I, maybe I would put feeling connected under the broader heading of designed experience. It's, uh, you know, whenever we talk about any theological concept within Christianity, it's often, like, if you talk about there's a freedom of the spirit that comes through mm-hmm. faith practices... Well, it's, you're not just freed. You're freed for what? You're freed unto what purpose, right? Uh, same with you. For people say they're saved in religion. Well, you're saved for what? It's saved unto what purpose? It does you no good if someone says they're saved so that they can go kill a bunch of people, right? Ugh, right. Yeah. That's that's not anyone's goal. It's saved for 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 what reason? So when you say 
a designed experience, my my initial gut response is, well, designed for what? Yeah. And controlled for what? And just as important, you, you said some control over things. Controlled for what purpose? And just as importantly, controlled by whom? And and so those are these some of the questions. Yeah, these are troubling questions for me. Um, and and so when I hear the the connection thing is it's weird to find me as a clergy person because I think I frequently felt disconnected from every faith community I've ever belonged to. Oh wow! And so that's a quiet statement. Yeah, and I think that's for two reasons. Reason number one: I have ADHD and I just daydream all day long. And if someone goes into a ritual and I've seen it more than once. I space out. And I have, I, I've already seen this episode. Can I fast forward? You know? Interesting. And Interesting. so, um, so I, I don't so much get into it when I'm watching it. Now, when I am conducting these rituals, I am so in the moment because I feel like it's, it's a gift I'm offering to other people. Sure. You're unlocking a prayerful experience. So, right. And yeah. so that's very meaningful to me. So when you said feeling connected, I feel connected to the people I'm serving when I'm, for instance, doing the Lord's Supper or presiding over a wedding or a funeral, you know? Well, I, I want to push back a little bit, Matt. Sure, yeah. And, and, and that, like, you know, if we watch an episode of, like, our favorite show, uh-huh. um, <laughs> before the podcast started, we're talking a bit about WandaVision, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Right? If, we wa- if we were to watch, like, the exact same episode of WandaVision over and over and over again, uh-huh. I imagine at one point we'll grow tired. Right of that episode, so much so that it would almost be like harmful to watch. Like, like it's just like there's just you know because yeah. we're getting bored of it, right? Uh-huh. But there's this thing about ritual that I think has its capacity to do the exact same thing over and over and over again, and it can grow more meaningful instead of less meaningful. And, and, and yeah. a good example is that like. You know, when, when we run when I, our Shabbat services on Friday night, if we do a different melody, uh-huh. like a new melody, I have to frame it, like big time. I have to say, okay, you're going to hear in a moment, not the usual melody, but a new melody. Because yeah. I'm disrupting the ritual. Uh-huh. I'm, I, you know, and so not everyone likes that. A lot of people just like this is the, the Shabbat experience to be exactly the same mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. Friday, and so I, there's a you know. But I get what you're saying too, yeah. because as a you know, as a as like a a leader, a clergy, the person who kind of runs the thing, yeah. I now derive my value from that. That's my identity is a person that runs this. If I'm sitting there not running it, I'm also not necessarily getting that sort of that zing, right? If you will. But Have I've you? got but I've got plenty of I've got plenty of colleagues that are the other way around. They can't pray when they lead services. I've heard that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I used I would say I used to be that way. I think practice took care of it when yeah. I was first yeah. like interning at a church near seminary and praying out loud in front of the congregation. That was the question I asked my supervisor most often, was how do I do this? I feel like I'm faking it. I felt very yeah, phony yeah, praying yeah. out loud, like sometimes in other people's words, because they would write on you know requests out and stuff. And in time, honestly, now when I do it, it feels completely natural. So you're, you're fake it till you make it. <laughs> I would not use that for... <laughs> I, I think for some people, it's a real natural natural thing. For me, when I pray, I don't even use words, usually, personally, you know, but to do this in a public setting, you have to, to have that connection that you mentioned, you yeah, have to do it in a yeah. certain way. But I also want to say that, like, I don't think people are born necessarily just to instantly feel connected to everything, right? Yeah, yeah. I often think that 
a feeling of connected is, a, is like a combination of, 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 like, of experience, of, of a skill. You can learn to feel connected yeah. with sort of the wisdom of growing older. Agreed, um, yeah. And, and, the, and these rituals are one of the ways we pass that yeah. on to, to other people. Not just younger generations, maybe someone who hasn't seen it yet. Yeah, yeah, and, and and rituals have a big benefit. But I also say that that like while religion co-ops ritual in a huge way, especially yeah, right. Judaism. Oh my gosh! Um, I would also say that like ritual happens well outside the context of religion. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, it was opening day for baseball recently, <laughs> and if you have ever gone to a ballpark and they do the seventh inning stretch and everyone stands up, everyone knows what songs to sing. If it's your first time there, you're like, "What is going on here? Is this a new religion?" Because there's all these rituals throughout, and uh, it's not religious, but it's certainly baseball is extraordinarily ritualized. And so I'll ask the question, and I'm not a fan of baseball, so I wouldn't know these rituals. Uh-huh. But but that seventh inning stretch, what do you think that ritual does? for the people that do connect with it. When you say feeling connected, I think it definitely connects the spectators to each other. Um, I don't know. I mean, certainly we can we could prove scientifically it has no impact on the game. Oh, wait, or does it, right? Because, <laughs> because if the crowd's making noise, that can inspire the players to play better. I think there is some indication of that. Um, so there may be practical purpose, but even if you lose, you come home having had fun. And so I think a lot of that stuff just makes the whole experience more fun. And um, for many people, very meaningful. They just feel this yeah. connection with one another. Here we all together in the crowd, chanting the same thing, wearing the same thing. But here's the thing. I <laughs> bristle at that. And it's weird. Again, it's weird yeah. that I'm in the role I'm in because I don't because I'm a little bit of a hermit and a malcontent. And so when I whenever I find myself in a crowd wearing the same thing, chanting the same thing, my first response is, "I got to get the hell out of here." Really? Yeah. It's it's it just spits me out like like a sour candy. <laughs> I don't. I just don't feel comfortable in a in a group in a herd. And so I think. I have a whole bunch of theories on genetically why that's the case, but it doesn't matter now. Uh, but I think when we look at rituals like this, we have to be aware of the benefits, which I love, which is you can gather a community and present this designed experience that allows people to feel that connection. Like you said, not everyone's born with it, either to one another or to God. Some people have a really difficult time getting themselves in a mindset of I feel connected to others and to God. Well, here we have designed experiences to help them feel that way. In designing an experience in one way, we are including some and excluding others. And so we always have to be hyper aware of uh, what that balance is. Who are, we, who are we excluding right now by doing it this way? One great example is very few faith communities, my own included, very few faith communities have a um, closed captioning system on their live streams or a sign language interpretation. So simply by the way we've done our thing, we're excluding a population. People with various forms of learning disabilities, for example. I mentioned my own ADHD. I, I have a really hard time sitting through a one-hour-long worship service when I'm leading it, let alone when I'm just in attendance. Mm-hmm. So, so whatever we design, we just have to be aware that that design is, by the nature of design itself, exclusionary. Yeah, yeah. And I think, but I think ritual like, is so much bigger than this, too, because yeah. I think 
individuals also design ritual all the time without yeah. even realizing it, right? So like, here, let me give you an example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so every, every morning I drive my son to preschool. He's four. And, uh, and we have a granola, he has a granola bar on the way, on the way over there. Nice. I'm, I'm always worried he's not eating enough. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. It's just my thing. <laughs> like, you never eat enough food. Okay. But he... Wait, wait. Are they the, uh, like those... Like really crumbly Odie ones, so you have crumbs all over your car. No, seat. they're not. But, okay, but they were. They were crumbs yeah. everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> he definitely doesn't care about crumbs. Anyways, so but he designed a ritual from with this granola thing that he made himself. He eats half of the granola bar on the on the way over there, and uh-huh. then he leaves the half in the car. So when I pick him up from preschool, he eats the other half on the way home. This is really important to him. Yeah, right? yeah. So important to him that I remember once. Uh, I dropped him off, and then my wife picked him up again, oh. and there was no half granola bar in there. So then that led him to a new design component in the ritual. Every single day, he tells me, remember, if my mom picks me up, make sure you move oh my goodness. the granola bar. It's part of the ritual. Now. Yeah. And it's so it's a fascinating thing. Like, what's what, what's being accomplished here? Have you asked him what? Well, I mean, I've tried. He's yeah. four, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> but what my suspicion is that there is a sense of nervousness over transition, right? right? That right. he is in a liminal state. He is becoming. He's coming from home to mm-hmm. preschool, two very different different places. And there's a stability mm-hmm. of knowing that when he'll have a granola bar there, and then on his way home. He'll finish a granola bar. Yeah. It's a very stable thing that he's created for himself. Yeah. So yeah. My suspicion is that this ritual here is sort of like to, it's a, a it's it's a design experience that is stable when he himself is sort of having this unstable. I won't say bad or you know it's not necessarily but like you know he's moving from one kind of location to another. Yeah. Yeah. And and so but and he needs it like like he he craves it. Um, and he designed it all himself. Now, those are two different things. He needs it and he craves it. And so I would take that back. Uh-huh. As a four-year-old, of course, it's great. But as time goes on, it's not the ritual that you want him to have. It's the stability internally. Yes. Yes. So the rituals are, in my opinion, always going to be a surface-level entry point to a deeper not issue, a a deeper craving or need that we have. So when we think of the Catholic Church, we don't do this in the Presbyterian Church, but in the Catholic Church, the ritual of the sacrament of confession, where you go into the booth and the priest is there, and you say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And you speak these words to the priest. The priest says, you are forgiven. Go do these acts as penance, ABC, and you go do them. That's a ritual that helps us get to an underlying sense that people have of wanting to make reconciliation in the world, right? Uh, With, yeah. Between ourselves. Yeah. So I'm guessing that your end goal for your son is not that when he's 34 years old, <laughs> he still has to have half a granola bar on the way <laughs> no, home from the no. office every day, right? You're going to want him by that point to say, I can make this transition and feel comfortable and get home and... And drink a lot of beer. <laughs> no, <laughs> no he, he's going to want to have his own, maybe still rituals, but it's that underlying sense of security through transition. That's the goal. Yeah. So yeah. when I look at our rituals in church, um, such as baptism or the Lord's Supper or any number of other ones we have, it's well, always that underlying yeah. thing. I don't want to just do the ritual. I want that ritual to be a doorway to something deeper. Well, let's, let's, do, let's go into this. So, okay. so let's, let's, do, let's think of one ritual that our faith communities do that we kind of unpack. Sure. For, say, a newcomer that's going to witness this ritual and may not be able to connect into it right away, 
the yeah. way everyone else around them is. is. Would there be one that we each, that we both have? Yeah. You want to share one? Do you think of one? Well, I'm trying to think of ones that I have that you also. Do, like, do you want oh. one that we oh. both have? Or no, one I don't know piece? if that's possible. Is well, there something uh, we do similar? That's what I'm wondering, yeah. Because <laughs> I was thinking, like, Passover uh-huh. is a great, is, a, is, is incredibly ritualistic. It is. And I'll tell you, from the Christian's perspective, it became trendy a few years ago to have Christian versions of the Seder. Yeah. And then there was pushback on that, being like, dudes, that's kind of intrusive. And uh, what's the word? Um, cultural appropriation, right? Sure, and so sure. and so there was some back and forth on that. What do you, so I guess my question would be, A, how do you feel about that? And B, tell me about the Seder and traditions and why Right, right, so. right. Okay, yeah. so, okay. I, guess I, I said I, tradition, I meant ritual. Sorry. I'm, I'm yeah. going first. Yeah. I, I, um, anyway. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, uh, Passover is a Jewish holiday um, where we celebrate... Uh, what happens in the book of Exodus, where the Israelites are freed from Pharaoh by Moses and go to, into the Sinai and wander it for mm-hmm. 40 years. And so the, uh, the pas- uh, Passover, also Pesach in Hebrew, Passover refers to the angel of death passing over the Israelites, which if you don't know anything with the story, it's pretty intense. Yeah. Um, hate yeah. to spoil it for you, <laughs> but the Bible's been around for a little while. Yeah, you, you're a, a few yeah. thousand years yeah. late yeah. to the show. Yeah, and so, and so the, the Seder, now Seder in Hebrew means just means order, but the Seder is a highly ritualistic sort of meal um, that us Jews have on the first and often second night of Passover, which is a seven-day holiday to or eight-day holiday, depending on whether you're in Israel or outside Israel. I'll get into that later. I didn't in know a that. Later okay. podcast. Yeah. Um, and you sit down with say your friends and your family. Well, there's like a Thanksgiving vibe going on here. Okay. And uh, and essentially you're you open a book that's called a Haggadah, which means like the story or the legend. And the Haggadah gives you this great. Gives you all the things you got to do, and you have to do all these things in the right order, or you're not doing it right. And that's yeah. the ritual part of it, right? And so you have to say all these certain blessings in a certain order. Um, and I won't get like deep into what the seder is, but 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 in the w- one thing that the seder is doing is that it's creating an experience that is like a tableau of the experience the Israelites had when they became free. It's essentially a celebration of freedom, mm-hmm. and we're re-experiencing that celebration every single year. Yeah. So it's almost as if we, us modern Jews, are going back in time and celebrating freedom with the Israelites every single year. That's the goal, that we're literally like transported in time, and so that we can also remember that experience every year. And that's why it's such a, it's a designed experience, yeah. and, but it's also a connection. It connects us to our tradition. It connects us to the ancient Israelites. And because it's a kind of like a family and friend thing, it connects us to our community as well. Yeah. And so it is a highly ritualistic experience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I get why it's so popular among Christians. Because it's believed, I, be- I think it's believed that Jesus was celebrating Passover for the Last Supper. Now, I've heard that it's maybe not true. There are <laughs> indications. <laughs> here's, here's my strong answer. Yeah. There are indications that it could be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've had plenty of Christians tell me this, yeah, that, yeah. That, that it is true. And so that's why I, I, I understand this kind of infatuation amongst the Christian world about leading, about, you know, leading a Passover Seder. Uh-huh. Now, uh, my personal opinion is, first of all, we always try to open our Passover Seder to guests. And what I say is that to people who are not Jewish that want to experience Passover with us is that we're not a zoo. 
you can't just sit there and watch. Nice, yeah. Right. Uh-huh. You yeah. Ha- if you want to experience Passover, you have to do it. You have to come to mm-hmm. our Seder, sit at our table, read the Haggadah, and do the things it tells you to do. Yeah. And if you do those things, great. Please join us because yeah, it, yeah. it is a, a holiday to you know invite guests. It's a holiday you know to be open. So, anyways, that's sort of how that's sort of the, just the quick the quick version of how Passover works. Any thoughts? It's good. Um, obviously, what I'm gonna say, yeah, that, that sucks. <laughs> Man, I I'm just anti Passover. No, it's wonderful. <laughs> I think it's a I think it's a great thing, and I think that connection to the past is also good. But I, 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 again, I always uh, I think it's good when it's serving its purpose. Uh-huh. So if you at the end of that ritual say to yourself, "I felt a strong connection uh, to God, into my tradition, into my history, into my family," then awesome. You know, more power to you. And food and food. There's a, there's a meal involved with it. There's always got to be food. Yeah, yeah, connection yeah. <laughs> to food as well. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And each. Each item of food has its own symbolism to the story. Oh, wait. Right. I didn't even go to the, like, yeah, there's a thing called a Seder plate. Mm-hmm. It's a special kind of plate, and there's a symbol. There's a symbolic piece of food on each component of the plate. Yeah. You don't really eat that. You just kind of look at that, and you, and you notice it, and at one point, you kind of like work with it. But, uh, but no, no, normally, you serve an actual meal, yeah, you yeah. know, matzo ball soup being very popular okay. uh, during Passover. But, uh, but yes, yes. Okay, so a connection there with food. Yeah, I do think it's a, a wonderful thing, and there are lots of parallels in Christian worship services where we do some of the same things every single week. And the Lord's Supper, our church does it once a month, but you know, you have the bread and the wine, and you say certain words ahead of time, and even the phrase "Do this in remembrance of me" is you know the words that Jesus said to all mm-hmm. of us. So part of that ritual is our response to what we see as a direct command from Jesus. Do this and remember me. Uh, But I just always look at two things with that. One is that it's, like I said, only if it's getting the deeper purpose. Jesus doesn't want us just breaking bread because he hates full loaves. (laughs) He's like, I'm so tired of those loaves. Open them up. Where am I going to put the butter? I shall never have the full loaf. Exactly. (laughs) There's a purpose. There's There's a meaning to that. It's a symbolic act for something deeper. And so that's... That's the important part. I don't want to get so stuck on the surface that I lose that underlying part. And that, that's where it often happens, where you'll hear of churches where they have one particular kind of bread, and then if they have to change it, they always got it from a bakery in town that goes out of business. And they're like, we can't use a different kind of bread, which to me is absolute nonsense. The Catholic Church had a problem recently where one young woman in their congregation had extraordinarily dangerous celiac disease, mm, where if she ate yeah. wheat, she could die. And she said, but I want to take communion. Can I use gluten-free bread? And they said, no. So what the hell are we doing here? If, if you can't find a way to bend your tradition to keep a girl alive and also allow her to participate, then your ritual is wrong. Can, right. Okay, okay. So then I guess my question, oof, I'm opening a Pandora's box here. Yeah, really. <laughs> when, when, when are, okay, a ritual should be accommodating. I, I believe yeah. that absolutely. It should be inclusive, but but at one point, can a ritual be so accommodating that it stops? It, it yeah. no longer has yeah. its initial use anymore. Yep, it um, can. It absolutely can. Yeah, that's also a problem. Uh, I think both are. It's the old slippery slope kind of argument of you know where do we stop? If we allow this, then 
then who's to say we don't also do that? I mean, our tradition has for ages, and some Catholic churches too, I think, we don't use wine anymore. We use grape juice because mm-hmm. we don't necessarily want to be buzzed on a Sunday morning, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. so okay, so now we have gluten-free bread and grape juice instead of bread and wine. Is that still the same? Now, personally, as an artist, I'm really comfortable messing with metaphor and saying, yeah, it still makes the same point. But I think for some people, those are difficult steps to, to take. You think maybe something that we're sort of like messing with when we change the tool is sort of like a collective memory of it? You know, for yeah, example, yeah. we have a very similar experience with uh, where we have wine slash juice and challah, right? Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And like, you know, I just have these childhood memories, first of all, of like, you know, there's, you could always choose between wine and juice. You know, you always could. That's always part of the ritual with a choice. Okay. As a kid, I always took the wine. <laughs> Don't tell anyone this, Matt. But as oh, a kid, yeah. I was well under 21. Yeah, sure. Grab that wine, knock it back. You know, I have very fond memories of that. Sure, so, you were drunk. <laughs> and so, like, if suddenly the ritual changes and it's all juice, mm-hmm. and there's no opportunity for an underage minor to steal some wine... Then, like, I think, I don't know, like, I feel like we're losing something there. Yeah, but you know what you're losing? The surface, not the deeper meaning. You're losing the surface, which was always expendable from the beginning. And we we allow, it's supposed to be uh, uh, an open doorway into this moment, and instead it becomes a closed door. And instead of saying, look at the beauty inside of that room over there, we say, look at this door that mm. we've built to allow us through and now we can't even get through it. The whole purpose of that door was to let us walk through it. And now we're saying, well, we can't use this bread and we can't use this wine. And you left out a couple of words in those words. We have the words of institution. I could rattle the words, them. Hold on, the words of institution? Yeah, within within the Lord's Supper, there are sub subsections of the liturgy. So in the words of institution is hold where... On, hold on, sorry, I'm going to stop you right there. Yeah, sure. Within the Lord's Supper. Okay, sorry. <laughs> you have to unpack that real quick. So, I speak in Christianese jargon sometimes, <laughs> right? The Lord's Supper, also called communion. Okay, okay. There you go. Now we're in language I understand. Uh, remember, I was raised Catholic, but now I'm Presbyterian, so sometimes I shift back and forth. The Catholic Church is more likely to call communion. Presbyterian Church more likely to call it Lord's Supper. But essentially, it's when we recognize the Last Supper. You remember Leonardo da Vinci's photograph of that, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when Jesus uh, uh, said, do this in memory of me, do this in remembrance of me. So during our sacrament, which is our ritual of remembrance of that moment, we have um, the, the liturgy there, the words that we say each time. Uh-huh. It begins with the invitation, wherein I say something along the lines of, you all can come and participate in this with us. Everyone is welcome. Uh, Then there's some prayer, usually some song, and then I do the words of institution. That's where I pick up the bread, and I say, on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus gathered with his disciples, taking the bread, he gave thanks and blessed it and broke it, saying, take this, all of you need eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you, et cetera, et cetera. I go on and on. Um, And so for many people, each and every word must be present to feel that they've really had their souls filled. Yeah. I'm more in line with jazz music where I'm like, oh, you know, we got the rhythm. We got the, we got the basic chord progression and we know where we're going to make this a living moment. Um, a living moment. Yeah. I like that. That's, that's very much within the Christian tradition, that that sacrament must be a living moment, and Scripture itself what? is a living document. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I call, I call like our, our Bible a living text there you go. Yeah. all the time. But yeah, a living I, moment I haven't yeah. really touched on before. Well, 
I, I think I might have just made that up, but it's but it's <laughs> oh, in cool. keeping but cool. it's in keeping with our tradition and yeah. our theology. And so um, the the living moment being that we're first and foremost we're dependent upon God's Holy Spirit to make the whole thing happen. Anyway, you know, it's not me. I think a lot of people look at it like I'm Dumbledore with the wand. And I'm saying, now comes the sacrament, poof, you know, and I make it happen. That's not how it works. If you didn't want to sound cool, you just sounded really cool. I'm sorry. But you're doing a Dumbledore (laughs) metaphor. Come on. That's too impressive. He doesn't say poof, does he? I don't think so. Flourish. He'll be like vision. He doesn't talk. (laughs) He he figured out how to do it without talking. That's right. Yeah. 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 So I I just, I'm careful about that magical thinking that, that makes people believe that you have to have every word correct and do it in just the right order. You know, when Jesus was doing it, it was it was a brand new thing, unless you think it was a seder. <laughs> but it was. But it's not like he was following a tradition word for word. He was taking the heart of something and expressing it in a meaningful way. This is so funny because you just by describing what you don't like, you like describe. You like nail Judaism. Oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We are we are so bad at spontaneous prayer. We can't pray spontaneously for oh, the life okay. of us because really? we've got blessings for everything. Yeah. Yeah. Specific things you have to say, and if you say it wrong, it feels wrong. It feels wrong, but For is it every- wrong? Yes, it's wrong. <laughs> it's wrong. It's in a different language, and uh, and so half the people. Even I mean, I, a lot of Jews don't know you know Hebrew. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right, but they know what it sounds like. But they're like. phonetically going. Yeah, wrong. yeah. Okay. And so, uh-huh. like, if I were to say anything incorrectly, they would recognize that like right away. Well, then, what's the what internal need is it fulfilling? In them, right, right. Uh, it's so interesting, but like there, it's the connection component again to one another, or to God, or to both. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's to our tradition, you uh-huh. know, to to all the people who said it before us, right? So, like, think about all those people who died in the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. They were saying the exact same blessings that mm-hmm. we say today. You know, think about how yeah. powerful that connection is. Yeah, um, for sure. And you know, and think about how powerful it is to teach that. To, to the younger generation, to say, hey, mm-hmm. y'all, this is our blessing for the bread. This is what we say. This is the blessing for the juice and wine. This is what we say. You, you have to learn this to be Jewish. Mm-hmm. To be part of our people, you need to know how to do these things. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, and so that's, so like we, so we, we have, I mean, like for it to work, we have to, we have to do it right. Or for it, it to work. It, it doesn't connect. Yeah. There's no zing. When you say for it to work, you mean yeah. to, to, foster that sense of connection? I guess so. Okay. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a hard... I mean, you and I, Matt, I believe that we work in this non-tangible world. Right, it's exactly. It's hard to describe yeah. what we do sometimes. For sure. And it's, and yeah. it's hard to describe the sense of spirituality of doing, this, doing the same thing over and over again, but doing it right in a way where everyone gets, yes, this is how it's done. We did it. You know, we, we did it sometimes, we did it together, but, you know, we got through a worship service and we did all the right parts and that felt good. Okay. How does it, I, I, this might be a bit of a tangent that we yeah, cut out. Yeah, yeah. We cut out and save for later. <laughs> How does it affect your perception of these things, having done them for a, a while and being a professional at it and seeing behind the curtain, so to yeah. speak? Yeah, it just grows more beautiful for me. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. just like, because I think I was, as pretty, I was pretty skeptical as you, uh-huh. Matt, when I first started rabbi school. I mean, I, I mean, when I first started rabbi school, I was like, what am I doing at rabbi school? But, like, <laughs> but yeah, but, uh, but over time, I've, just, I've grown to see the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that like, you know, no matter where anyone Jewish goes, say in the reform movement, no matter what temple they go, they're going to hear and see things that they recognize. Mm. And they're going to connect with that. 
you know. Yeah. And so, so, uh, and that's and, and that's beautiful, right? You know, this idea that like you could go anywhere in the world essentially and understand the language of prayer, even if you don't speak the language mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. place. Yeah. And so that's sort of that's sort of the the connection mm-hmm. in some ways is that like not only am I connecting myself with my community, my our and our community with our ancient tradition, but we're also connecting our community with the rest of the world. Yeah. And that's powerful. That's powerful stuff. It's hard to it's hard to define. It's yeah. not tangible, but it but it it, it, it like works. And yeah. so I can't. It's hard to you know. It's hard to like describe exactly like what we're going through when we do it right and how it feels so wrong when you say the wrong word but that's sort of what's happening huh that's interesting yeah yeah i think i appreciate mistakes a lot you know and so yeah (laughs) and i even enjoy them to an extent and so I, I do feel like we sometimes make our traditions more precious than they have to be to say, you know, like if I accidentally knock over the cup of wine, that's not a big deal, right? Right. So right. what? And if we accidentally say the words wrong, well, we try again next week and yeah. it's not an issue. Yeah. Uh, because again, it's that deeper level beneath the surface ritual. It's that deeper theological meat that's there that we're still getting to, even if we say, you know, make a little slip up here and there. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, like, and you know, and I, I hear what you're saying. Like, sometimes yeah. the stakes just seem too high for a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I get it too. Like, like, I make mistakes all the time. Like, I'm really bad at pronouncing things. And you know, it's Even, not. It's <laughs> not mistakes. And maybe this is getting into the next section. Yeah, of straight, straight dogma. Straight dogma. Yeah. Uh, I'll hold off then. I'll hold okay, off. And I'll say okay. that. Yeah. So. Um, but and yeah. If, so there you go. Anything uh, else you wanted to cover in this section before? We go? I don't want to like. <laughs> I don't want to change our format. I do. You know, I, I would love to hear. I would love Matt just to hear, like maybe quickly, one ritual. Oh yeah. Just to go, like maybe a newcomer might experience that everyone else seems to know what's going on, and yeah. they're like, "What's?" And they're looking around, like, "What's happening?" Well, I mentioned the Lord's Supper before, but you know what? I might. I'm going to change it I, since I already talked about Lord's Supper. When someone comes in for the first time in a very typical Sunday morning, one thing they might not know is that we stand for some songs and sit for some songs (laughs) and stand for some prayers and others. And you can see the newcomers like being the last ones to stand. They look to their left and they're like, oh, everyone's standing. I guess I'll stand up. And then frequently, if they have had the courage and the strength of character to sit toward the front, after the hymn is over, everyone else sits down. But we're all, all facing forward. They stay standing up for a while. And then maybe it's in like 10 seconds in, they realize, oh, oh my no, gosh. They messed up. I'm the only oh, one standing up. this whole How room. embarrassing. Right. It can be. And yeah. fortunately, yeah. fortunately, this congregation is real gentle and friendly. And someone will just tap them on the shoulder and say, sit on down. You know, it's, that's yeah. much better than having yeah. it be 10 minutes later and you feel like a goof. But that kind of thing, the standing and the sitting, A, it's nice, right? It's one way we kind of show respect. People prefer to stand to sing for just practical reasons uh, of getting their airs, their air into their lungs. But um, but for the most part, it doesn't much matter. You know, we have members of the church who are perhaps infirm in some way and they can't stand up. They sit the whole way through and it doesn't impact their experience with mm. God or with one mm. another. So in some ways it doesn't matter. Yeah. But we do it anyway. And you know why? Just because we always have. <laughs> and so, and then some of those times we stand and there's a song that goes along with it that in some churches it's not even printed. So you've mentioned this in, in your tradition as well. Sometimes everyone just stands up and starts singing something. Oh my God. And it's not written anywhere and everyone just knows it. And so to a newcomer, 
this is again where I said before there's a, there's a shadow side to these rituals. That ritual is great because we stand up and we say with sincerity, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God, all creatures here below. And it's a beautiful moment of huh? gratitude. Yeah, this is one of our doxologies <laughs> and uh, one of the, the songs we sang. It's a really sweet and good prayer. But if it's your first time in the room and everyone else sings it and you're excluded from it because you don't know it, you're not into it. it's not a ritual of welcome anymore. Yeah. It's a, a ritual of exclusion. And you're like, well, I'm not in the club. Could Okay, I'm going to put out a theory for you. Yeah. Could the enjoyment of a ritual draw from the fact of I did not know this, but now I do. Yes. And so you mentioned designed experience. Yeah. If the experience is designed to allow for that, that's A. Yeah. A learning curve. Right. Yeah. Because some churches don't. They don't even, they don't think twice about it. They just do it. Right. 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 So if you're being thoughtful about it, and for instance, like in our congregation, we put those lyrics in the bulletin and it says, please stand, sing this with us, you know? And if you don't know the tune, I guess that takes a few tries. You know, maybe next week you get it, but this week you don't. But that's one way you can have your ritual be inclusive is by taking some real simple steps of letting people know what's coming and why. And the second part is that individual person, are they going to be open to this experience or are they really going to be in a hurry to allow themselves to be pushed out, right? So if I were, well, this has happened. I was invited to your place and I sat in on a service where about 50% of it, I had no clue what was going on. Oh, yeah, no clue. So I had the opportunity to get pissed off and go, well, they were not very hospitable. (laughs) Or I had the opportunity to say, I was was cool and new and different, right? And so some of it just has to do with your mindset when you walk in. Yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah. But but certainly as the hosts, you and I, of this experience, we have to recognize that some people, this might be more true of Christianity than Judaism. There are a lot of people out there that have been deeply wounded by the church. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people are walking in my door because they felt spiritually abused by the place down the street. Mm. I'm not speaking about a specific church now. I mean, some other church. (laughs) I don't want want people to think I'm thinking about the Methodist church. I'm not. But a lot of people have deep spiritual wounds from their past and they come to our congregation looking for healing. And um, if we don't open the door in a thoughtful manner, we might, we might exacerbate that wound. Oof. Well, yeah. <laughs> on that note, maybe we can move on to stray dogma. Uh, Am I too negative? I'm sorry. I don't mean to be. <laughs> no. It's just... It's just uh, I think I'm a kind of a happy person, but just, I'm, I'm being Mr. Naysayer today. No, it's not. It's a, it's a good... Actually, it's a stray dogma issue. It right? is. Yeah. Um, so, it's stray dogma, things we don't like about some of our own personal background tradition stories. I mentioned this to you uh, last time, I think, that my mom was a novitiate nun. She oh lived gosh. in the cloistered uh, convent for three years in the 60s. So many questions, but I yeah. can't ask them in this context, but I will. So she was raised in a Catholic family, devout, beautiful family. I love them. And a lot of my faith is because of what they gave me, you know. And so, but she was a novitiate nun, which means nun in training, essentially. But she went, she lived the nun's life for three years. I think 67 to 69. So she went into the convent, saw no news for three years and came out. And like the whole world was crazy. Oh my gosh. Uh, That was a fun year for a lot of people, the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she was cloistered. So what are you going to do? And then my dad had been a priest for like 10 years. By that point, uh, they met one another while clergy and fell in love, got married, and excommunicated all at once. And so... Did they like... Oh, man. I don't know how much that's... You know what? Keep going. Sorry. Sorry. I'm not going to ask questions. I'm just going to... Like, hold on to this table and not ask anything. Yeah. They they got excommunicated and my 
they actually had a circle of friends of former Catholic clergy. They were all excommunicated together. Uh, not at the same time, How but they, they found one another after. It's like, a weird club. Like superheroes. Yeah. But here's oh, the thing. Yeah. Then they had kids, my brother and I, and then my little brother many years later, and they still wanted to pass on these traditions and rituals, so we had some sort of base uh -huh. to build from. They told us, your religion is your choice, but we want you to have a starting point. So they raised us in the Catholic Church. Our local priest was a kind guy, and he said, look, I know you're excommunicated. They told him, you know, can we still come? And he was like, of course you can. You know, come be a part of the family and just you can be part of the church anyway, even though you've been excommunicated by Rome. Now, as a kid, I knew this story, part of the family history, so you know it growing up. And so every week, I went to a church that I knew my parents had been kicked out of. <laughs> so every single thing we did, I looked at with uh, with a bit of a side eye. You know, I was like, really? Do we really believe this? Because they kicked my parents out for falling in love. So that informs me to this very day. Every single religious practice I have, I think, okay, but is this bull? <laughs> do, oh, do we have to censor this? I don't know. I'm thinking about that. But do you have a beep button in your... I don't know. I don't know. I'll, I'll figure out how to do it. So in case you edit that out, I have to say, but is that bull? <laughs> and so, uh, so when I look at rituals, I think so often I find that aspect of it, that we're doing these surface level uh, activities. We're carrying out these motions, but they only matter at all if we're also doing the underlying theological, spiritual, emotional foundation that gives that ritual its meaning. The ritual in and of itself is meaningless. Mm, so that's like an anchor. Yeah. Any ritual you have is absolutely worthless and pointless. And I would say even potentially harmful if it doesn't have that foundation underneath it. Interesting. Yeah, so I went right to some heavier stuff. I was going to say some other things, but that's, that's how I feel about rituals. I'm always a little bit suspect of it until I've gotten through that surface to see what the, the foundation beneath it is. And if that's solid, then I'm like, great, gung-ho, let's do it. Well, okay. Let me talk a little bit about Judaism for a moment. I want yeah. to hear your thoughts. Okay. So, uh, Judaism is you like inhale and exhale ritual essentially, okay. right? Because it, because the way you have all these these Jewish laws to follow. Yeah. It's uh, you know it starts with the Ten Commandments uh -huh. and then moves on to the like six hundred thirteen, uh, and uh, and these laws they have a Hebrew term called halacha. It means like goings. Okay. Um, and so someone that's traditional Orthodox Jew or, or Jewish is going to try to, I would say, like almost like collect as many halachot, that's the plural, halachot, mm -hmm. as possible every day. When you say collect, what do you mean by that? It, it, it's like a trigger, right? So when you say, um, so when you say your blessings in, mm -hmm. um, for prayer, you've, you, you've done it, you've triggered it, collected. Okay. Right. When you say say you say the blessing over the over lighting the candles and light the candles, you collected that that halacha. When you say the blessing over the bread, that's so you interesting. Collected it. Okay. And and what you're collecting. And do you keep track of that over the day? Uh, I mean, like art. We have we have thousands of books that wow. tell us how to do this. Okay. Um, we don't need to keep track of it. No, I mean, do you like already... score yourself? Do you like say I I got ten today? And you I check mean, them God off? is scoring you, Matt. <laughs> oh, <geez>. Okay. <laughs> Um, and, and so what you're doing is you're collecting mitzvot. Uh -huh. uh, mitzvot is the plural of mitzvah. Mm -hmm. uh, you may recognize that as like bar mitzvah or right. bat mitzvah. And mitzvah has kind of two meanings. Its, it's basic meaning is commandment. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it gets translated as good deed. And so you're trying to collect as many commandments as possible. The, I would argue that might be the foundation of these rituals that occur on a daily basis. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so and so no. So we have our Bible, of course. Our, we call it the Tanakh in uh-huh. Hebrew. Um, and then we have this. You know, I mean, we have books that could fill this room, the room in where we're at right now. We're yeah. not in a, we're, we're not in a small. It's a big room. It's everybody. a big room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and all those books tell you how to do it, or yeah. or argue over how to do it. More likely, than sure. what, what ends up happening. And then modern Orthodox and ultra Orthodox Jews attempt to follow it. Yeah. Every single component of it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I'm glad that they find deep meaning in doing that. And there are just people out there that are hardwired to love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. They, and they just love it. And that's, and that's great. They love it. And, there, and lots of people just like being told to do every day. Um, being told, here are the rules of the day. And that's fine for them. My, my issue is that you can't really hold down a great day job. Exactly. When you're yeah, trying to yeah. practice, mm-hmm. all, when, you're, when you're trying to collect all these mitzvot through practicing all this halakha. Yeah. Um, and so, and so, like you know, the reform movement essentially became what it became because of this problem, right? Where, like, if you want to be Jewish and you mm-hmm. want to say participate in yeah. the country that you live in, uh, you used to not be able to do both, right? Um, and so, essentially, the reform movement said, "Well, we believe that that like the book of the Talmud, which is one of those books with all of all those rules, uh-huh. is important to Judaism, but you, it's not necessary. You have to follow." all the rules laid out there, you only follow the ones that have meaning for you. It's an informed choice. Okay. Essentially. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so and so yes, ritual can become too much. Yeah. Right? And when it is too much and it's God judging you, <laughs> yeah. then yeah. what do you do if you wanna like, you know, back off a little bit? Uh-huh. If you don't want to do one of them or yeah. ten of them or any of them. Mm-hmm. It becomes a problem. Yeah. Uh, and so I think a, a lot of Judaism between, I don't know, maybe now and two to three hundred years ago has been a conversation of how do we remain Jewish? How do we feel Jewish? And also, how do we have a job uh-huh. and have a family and have friends and like do things we want to do and also still feel that Jewish connection without yeah. having to follow every single halakha that's laid mm-hmm. out in these books. That's sort of that's that's yeah. been the problem, and so the answer has been sort of different forms of Judaism: reform, conservative, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and Orthodox are the big three. There's a lot of other forms of Judaism out there as well, but each of them has a solution that laid out about what they think should be done, and this idea of having to follow all of these rules, these halakha, yeah. which in my mind is all pure ritual. Gotcha. And yet, even <laughs> even within Reform Judaism, though, there are some that are, I would imagine, more important than others. And when you gather together, you've yeah. got some that you're saying, all right, we're going to do these rituals here. Even though there are the hundreds yes. to choose from, yes. we're going to gather together, and these are the ones we hit on right, the Sabbath right. day together. Right. So, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and you're going to get, like, regional preferences, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, for example, our musicians have developed two new melodies for some of our, mm-hmm. you know, thousand-year-old liturgy, right? Yeah. So anyone that comes to our synagogue is never going to hear these melodies before, uh-huh. which isn't necessarily always good, right? Because suddenly they're, they're like pulled out of like their, their, their experience, their connection. Mm-hmm. But they may also find these new melodies very beautiful. Yeah. So, you know, that's part of dealing with the ritual and deciding what's important, what needs to stick around, and what can be, what can be like creatively changed, mm-hmm. and what can go, right. you know? Right. And, and so that, that appreciation of the malleability of ritual... I think is is what makes it uh, possible to allow new people in. Yeah, you know, because if uh, if you get mad at that, then you're excluding a lot of creative people. 
a lot of people that need differences. There's a lot of times a presumption that it's the board person that should change their mindset. The what person? The board. The one that walks in like a kid in our pews that's bored by church, oh, okay. right? Okay, yeah. and, and so if you say to your parents, I'm bored by this religious service, there's almost a presumption that that kid should change to fit the service. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, why don't we do something that this kid finds interesting? Why don't we do it in such a way that those 10 sleeping adults out there that I can see, you know. Med- you mean meditating adults? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we should have a separate episode where we say, listen, those of you who are sleeping in our religious services, we see you. We see you checking your phones too. You're not as subtle as you think you are. And uh, if you're bored, odds are I am too. And if we're bored to doing this, then we're doing it wrong. So let's change it, you know. And so... Um, Kowtowing to the sameness is not the way to keep a community vibrant. There's that old saying that the seven most destructive words in a church are, we've never done it that way before. Oh. Is that seven? We've never done it that way before. Yeah. So um, it's that's just death to me. We've never done it that way before. I, I leave. Okay. You know, it's just awful. <laughs> I got negative again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like negative in a long pause. It makes it, it makes it hard to come back from that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I feel like that's 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 stray dogma. I think we yeah. I think we nailed that one. <laughs> All right, we're, what's we're, up? What's next? Next is pop theology. And so before we get into this topic, I, I want to offer a bit of a trigger warning. Um, so uh, I really want to talk about uh, an area where people experience a lot of hardship and develop ritual at the same time, not necessarily non in, in a non-religious kind of way. Just to explore that for a few for a few moments. Um, and so we're going to talk a bit about the infertility world. Full disclosure, this is the world that I'm, I'm part of. Um, I myself am not infertile, but me and my wife have had some problems with trying, with, with trying to have kids. And, uh, and so I have, I have come to learn about this world because of our, our problems, and I've come to love this world. Hmm. And so these are individuals that have, are going through a lot of hardship um, trying to have babies. And, and it's just, and they've, over time, have developed some amazing rituals because of this. Um, and so it's jokes that this is like the, the worst club to be in with the best members, hmm. right? Yeah. And so Matt, I'm going to talk to Matt a little bit about some of the things you'll notice if you're part of this. And if you're outside of this, you might see it and suddenly realize what it is. Um, and so just, I just, the first thing I want to talk about is the big symbol for the infertility community is the pineapple. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I had no idea. Yeah. Why is that? You're gonna, yeah. If you see, yeah. I feel like pineapples, I see pineapples everywhere all the time. Well, they're, they're like a symbol of welcome and hospitality are, are in, so, in some circles. Yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. that might come from some Hawaiian tradition, but whatever the case, it's frequently used as a way to say welcome to our house to have some type of pineapple imagery. But yeah. also apparently it's this. Yes. Yes. Um, so uh, there's, um, there's a, like a scientific reason why uh-huh. you know, pineapple has an enzyme in it that is, uh, is, is like an anti-inflammatory, okay. which is good for it to have right before, say, like IBF. Okay. Um, and so, uh, but doctors will tell you it's not enough. And that it's yeah. better to take a supplement okay. than eat a pineapple. Also, yeah. it might upset your stomach, which would be so a whole pineapple. Yeah, yeah which would be detrimental. <laughs> but that's so. But then it's taken off a life of its own. And like some people will say, well, you know, it has a crown. It stands tall. It's sweet on the inside. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so what I love is that like the history of it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But like the the embrace 
movement of it yeah. is amazing. And one thing I've discovered about this about the infertility community is that a lot of what they do is based around hope, deriving hope yeah. from these impossible situations. Oh yeah. Um, and so you know another thing to look out for, like if you ever see um, like. Uh, I don't know, baby announcements. Uh-huh. Matt, maybe you're kind of past that stage with you and your friend group with baby announcements. I think we are, yeah. <laughs> Although some of my college class graduates are now having grandkids. Okay, so, okay, there you go. Yeah, there you, there go. you go. So you're back again, full yep, circle. Exactly. Um, you know, I'm still a little, I mean, my, I'm a little younger than you are. Uh-huh. So me and a bunch of my friends are all trying to get pregnant right now. Um, and you're gonna and there's things to notice there as part of the ritual yeah. of infertility community. So if you ever see, for example, a baby announcement with a lot of hypodermic needles somewhere in that oh. announcement. Okay. That is an IVF baby. Are they like prominent? Are they in the background? They're or often either or. Either or, and okay. they're usually they're usually displayed in kind of like an artistic way. Right. Um, okay. But they're there, and if you see them there, nice. that's that's a symbol. And so there's a whole thing about that because it's a big deal. When someone is finally at the point to be able to announce the baby through IVF, yeah. it's, norm- it's normally taken more than one time or, or, or attempt to do it. So right. it's been possibly anywhere from a, like a, a one to five year journey. Okay. So when they make that baby announcement and they have the hypodermic needle there, it's, it's, you should see that as being a huge testament to a difficult experience this couple has had over yeah. the life. Um, and I find that it's an amazing part of the ritual because it's so, yeah. it's also like, like, you know, know that there's hope here. Like, know that, like, we had a hard time and here we are willing to announce our baby because we're, we're pretty confident we're going to get the full term. So someone else who's opening that birth announcement could draw hope from seeing yeah, the needles yeah. on there. They might not have even known that it was a long process for the person sending it. Yeah. But they could yeah. see that and say, this might be my future too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Nice. Couple of things you're gonna, I, I, I've, I've discovered. A lot of uh, people, they'll get uh, French fries. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, geez, I do that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen so many, like on Reddit, or no, on uh, Instagram, I've seen like so many like pictures mm-hmm. uh, women with like fries. like and, and once again, there's this idea that you need the salt, it's important oh. um, for uh, either like blood flow. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's developed its, its own kind of tradition of just like this is what we do. Okay. You know? Uh, and French so- fries and pineapple. <laughs> We're getting a whole recipe going. And socks. I've seen so many socks. Why socks? Uh, you wear your special socks. To uh, you know, whether IVF or whether whatever your IUI, whatever you're doing, huh. um, you you wear them and they're really and they have meaning. A lot of them have pineapples on them, but like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Nice. Uh, and I think one other thing that I that I've seen is this idea that like you have something special with you during sort of this process of trying trying to get pregnant, and then you when it, when you're at a point when you're willing to like you know tell everyone, which means you feel confident you'll you'll get the term, you usually pass that on to someone else. Uh, Wait, maybe I missed something. Pass what on to so someone? So, like, someone might have like a bracelet they'll wear. Oh, they'll wear I see. The treatments, okay. they'll mm-hmm. wear them throughout the whole process. They'll, 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 be, they'll maybe accomplish being after their first trimester. Yeah. And then they'll feel ready to sort of make the announcement. And after the announcement, they're ready to like kind of like get, get ready for this, you know. And so, what they'll do is they'll often like give that bracelet to someone else. Who's That's really trying. nice. Because yeah. that bracelet has like some, some luck attached to it, sure, right? Something sure. special. Right, you know, this this bracelet like got me through my first try everywhere before yeah. to through <laughs> my first trimester, and um, and now I want to get to someone else who. It's almost like an iconography to yeah. its, to itself, yeah. And it sounds different than I mentioned sports before, and baseball players are well known to be very superstitious, but this doesn't sound like superstition to me. It sounds like 
it's always around hope. Finding meaning and placing meaning into activity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're not saying, no one is saying it's because of that pineapple that I got pregnant. Right. right. They're not yeah. saying that. They're just saying that we went through these rituals and it kept our hope sustained but for I, a time. I feel like the pineapple is, has become this level of connection. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, like it, you know, I, 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 I struggle. Like someone might say, I struggle with having a baby. Like I've struggled mm-hmm. for years. And, and you have too, and we both enjoy the fact that we're connected to this pineapple. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's just like it's that. There's that connection component we talked about earlier. Uh huh. Uh huh. Nice. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. I had not heard any of those things. Yeah, and there's a whole language too. Uh huh. Um, so, for example, if you've had a couple of miscarriages and you finally have a baby that's coming to term, you think mm-hmm. you know uh, it's called a rainbow baby. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so if you see a, a if, if any of your friend's grandchildren mm-hmm. have an announcement about yeah, yeah. about having a baby and you see a rainbow anywhere in that announcement, that's a symbol. It's code. Now, I could see that being done by accident by someone because it's also just so joyful of it's, a symbol, right? Well, so someone might do it just not knowing. They're going to get some questions. Like, they're gonna say, okay. I'm so sorry. You know, wow, yeah, yeah. I did not if That's how it is. That. Okay. It's a code. Yeah, yeah. So it's code. And it says, huh. I tried so hard this to happen. Mm-hmm. And it finally is happening. Yeah. Um, that's what the rainbow means. Wow. Yeah, when you're a rainbow baby. Also, like, you know, a sunshine baby, for example, that's like, so pretend that you, 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 had, a, you had a child, no problem, uh-huh. and then you miscarry after you, for the second child you want to have. Yeah. That original child is called a, a sunshine baby, right? Because think, I think a, a, it's a hopeful metaphor. Like, yeah. You know, sure, I mean, it, it's, it's good to have a kid. You already had one. You know, thank goodness that you have this one. Yeah. And if your sunshine baby's here to help you get through the fact oh, that you're having a really okay. hard time with, a, with another one. Wow. You know, those, like, sunshine and rainbows and pineapples are all such chipper items. Like, yeah. they, on the surface, they look like cartoon yeah, well, brightness. Yeah, let's unpack that for a moment. But what they represent is so... That foundation you're talking about. It's so deep and meaningful and heavy yeah. and painful. And, and, and yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, this is a yeah. community that deals with a lot of pain. Right, a right. A lot of pain, a lot of hardship. Mm-hmm. And, 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 like, you know, for women, it's so physical, too. The hardship that they have to, you know, overcome. Yeah. And, uh, and yet the symbology of it sort of is, is all designed to be hopeful. Yeah. yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. the design experience. Yeah, right to like to still hope because at the end of the day, you want you want a child, right? Right, right. And it's not at all. They're not trying to cover up the pain or say, oh, it's not that bad, right? Or just move on. It's right. it's within the context of the reality of of the hardship. Right, right. But giving you that thing to continue moving toward. And I, yes, and you know, and I think unfortunately in our society and many other societies. We don't really talk about this enough, right? You know, yeah. there's this, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if it's a stigma, but uh-huh. there's a thing where, like, if you have a miscarriage, if you're having problems conceiving, you just don't seem to talk about it. So do you think these symbols work against that, or do they no, reinforce I they, that? I think they help it, right? They provide, a, a, like, a language okay. that makes it more mm. consumable for a more mainstream audience. Okay, yeah, yeah. And hopefully it could also be addressed directly, when, you know, when it should be. But, yeah, that's that's fascinating. I had no idea. I wonder how many birth announcements I've looked at that yeah. have had those on them, and I just missed it. Right. But that's an interesting thing, too, because, like, you know, we had no issue with our first kid. Yeah. Um, and so we did not join this community, you know, when we had our first kid. Yeah. Only after trying to have our second do we join this community. Right. So I was in your boat, you know, yeah, not, yeah. like, three years ago. 
But now that I've had this opportunity to, to you know, to sort of like be a member of this of this group of people, right? Yeah. Right, the, have the best members, but it's the worst club, and yeah. uh, I I feel like a little a little wiser, uh-huh. um, and a, a little older. Of course, yeah. Uh, being seeing this, and so like I would love it if like more people who necessarily weren't members of the infertility community, you know, it's not going to be you want to be, it's not something you want to be a member of, really. Sure. We're understood it better, like understood it's happening, and it's not something that we're so quiet. About. Right, right, yeah, agreed. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that I think that's our ep- that's our episode. I think that's our episode. Yeah. All right. So a couple of thank yous before uh, you know we turn it off, and it is want to thank the Metro Brothers for their intro and outro music, and also of course James Brown for our, our awesome logo, and I want to thank you Matt for just you know being here and yeah. hanging out and talking about religion and stuff. Thank you, too. Uh, yeah, and if you want to see us in action, you always can. Uh, you know, we're online at the moment. We're hoping one day soon to be in, in, in person. We're we taking know. we're taking small steps. Yeah, we yeah. had one family with us in the sanctuary oh, last week. Oh, I might do one family per week ongoing now. I don't know yet. What, a, what an interesting fundraising idea there, Matt. No way. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst idea ever, yeah. You can come in, dude. Mission's only a hundred bucks ahead. Uh, sorry, yes. All right, all right. Um, anyways. Uh, That's so, how schisms happen, man. Yeah. <laughs> you can find me, if you want, if you want to see Matt, Matt in action, Matt, where would you go? First Presbyterian Church of Anchorage, Alaska on, uh, just Google that or Facebook it. Um, we're also on YouTube and uh, we're here in Anchorage, Alaska. You can walk in, but the building's usually locked during the pandemic. Yeah, I highly recommend to watch. Matt's a pretty handsome guy. Aww. <laughs> anyway, uh, you can find me at frozenchosen.org, um, where we have Friday night services uh, every Friday night at 7.30. So anyways, you can join me for that. Nice. Well, it's been great talking to everybody. I hope to see you soon. Yep, take care. Bye.